So this past weekend, as we were away on a little family retreat, we played the game Herd Mentality. No, if you've ever heard of it, I'd never heard of it before. But it is an interesting game where you're asked a question and you try to answer the majority answer. In other words, not your own personal answer, but what do you think most people would say in answer to that question, thus the herd mentality. And if you answer in, uh, in joint uh, agreement with others, if you have that majority answer, then you win a cow. Um, actually, it's a little cow chip. Um, actually, it's not a cow chip. It's a <laughs> coin with a cow head on it, and uh, that's, that's your prize. But if you happen to have an answer that uh, is out of the norm, if you're the one by yourself, odd man out, then you receive a pink cow. It's the pink cow of doom. Um, I still don't understand all of that. <laughs> but uh, there was a question that was asked, and uh, I thought it was a pretty fascinating question, and the question was, what is the greatest superpower? Now, in, in this situation, I went completely blank. I, I'm not up on all the main uh, Marvel heroes, uh, uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy. I haven't seen all the movies. I even forgot about Iron Man and Spider-Man and Captain America. I, I just went blank. So I went old school and thought of Superman. Um, the problem was Superman has multiple superpowers. So which one would be the most cho chosen by the majority? And by that time, my brain was so tired, I didn't care. So I just, I just said flying. And uh, flying was not a good answer because I got the pink cow. <laughs> so that just happened this past weekend, and I'm still licking my wounds somewhat from that. But as I was doing it and studying in Romans chapter 8, it hit me. I have a superpower. I have the powerful, supernatural, Holy Spirit living in my heart. And yet, okay, good. <laughs> and yet, how often do I live my life without remembering that? I remember a, a pastor years ago saying something like this. He said every successful person that he had ever met was a person who had come under the dominating control of a great truth. I've never forgotten that because I think it is accurate. Successful people, true in the spiritual realm, maybe even outside in the business realm, are individuals who've come under the dominating power of a great truth. And what I have for you this morning, I think, is an amazing great truth, even more than one. The Bible is filled with great truths that should dominate your life. If you wanted to find one book of the Bible that might have more than others, perhaps, uh, the book of Romans would be a good choice. And if you wanted one chapter in the book of Romans that might have even more of these great truths, I would say Romans chapter 8 is filled with them. Great truths that when they dominate your life, 
radically change who you are and cause you to prosper in the eyes of God. So just by way of reminder, a couple of weeks ago, we were in Romans chapter eight. Let me begin reading with verse five, and we have these verses on the screen for you. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the sinful nature is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the sinful nature is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, Paul says to his readers, but you're controlled by the Holy Spirit. If, or it could be translated since, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Haunting words. Now notice in the middle of verse 9, it talks about the Spirit of God lives in you. And here is one of those great truths. We are God's temple because God lives in us. It's unique. It's going to mention it not just one time, but over. We are God's temple. How often do I forget that we are the temple of God and he lives in my soul? Notice in verse 9, you've got the Spirit mentioned, and then secondly, the Spirit of God is mentioned, and then thirdly, the Spirit of Christ is mentioned, which means they're all synonymous, which points to and implies the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Seen throughout Scripture, even for the beginning of creation, sometimes implied and sometimes clearly declared, but we are the temple of God. What a majestic, glorious, incredible thing that God lives in me as a believer. Would you not think that God would rather dwell in a beautiful cathedral, one that was designed by some great gifted uh, artists, built by craftsmen, priced beyond comprehension, years to establish. Wouldn't you think God would rather dwell in there? No, he'd rather dwell in a heart saved by grace, a heart that's been recovered, a life that's been transformed. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors, wrote an article that became the title for a book called Man, the Dwelling Place of God. How improbable, but it is real. And it is a truth that once you understand it and apply it to your life, radically change who you are. It changes who you are. You'll notice that one of the great characteristics of true child of God is that the Holy Spirit dwells in them. Now in chapter seven, we were told that in all the children of Adam, there is indwelling sin. 
Sin lives in us, called the sin nature. But in all the children of God, there is the Holy Spirit living us in us. We still battle with the sin nature. It has not been eradicated. Remnants of it are still there, but it's been rendered powerless. It's dominion broken because the Spirit is there who is far more powerful. So Paul is struggling in chapter seven with the desire to do what he knows he should do and he doesn't do and he gets in chapter eight and he recognizes, but I've got the Holy Spirit. And because of that, by God's grace, I can go forward. So chapter seven, verse 17, sin lives in me. Chapter eight, verse nine, 10 and 11, the Holy Spirit lives in me, and he indeed is far greater. Now, faith grabs hold of that truth. Great definition of faith, Hebrews 11, tells us faith believes what cannot be seen. And verse six says that without faith, it's impossible to please God because the one who comes to God must believe that he is. And the one who comes to God must believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So faith acknowledges the truth and then diligently pursues the truth, begins to order and structure the life around that dominating truth until the life is totally changed. One such person was a young monk by the name of Martin Luther over 500 years ago. He was, as a religious man and teacher, seeking to obey all the laws that were given him, all the religious instruction that he had received. Very conscientious, so he's trying to be honest and evaluate his performance and was totally depressed. He realized he was a failure, that he could not achieve this righteousness that a holy God demands, so he went to Rome. When he arrived at Rome, he saw what he did not expect, a lot of open sin, even among religious people, and he was so discouraged. In that day, you could receive an indulgence, some type of spiritual privilege or reward, if you would go up on the steps of Pilate, on your knees, every step, praying. And people still do it today. Steps of Pilate are supposed to be the actual steps that Jesus walked up going to Pilate when he was tried. The steps were taken from Jerusalem, supposedly, and transferred to Rome. And so Luther began to do that. He began to go up on those steps on his knees. And then he heard a voice. And the voice quoted a verse of scripture found in Habakkuk and Romans and Galatians and Hebrews and The voice said this, the just shall live by faith. Ever heard that before? The just. The just shall live. The just shall live by faith. Take it apart. Look at it from every angle. It's a fantastic verse. And that verse got a hold of Martin Luther. And he went back and he began to preach grace. That salvation comes by grace alone, received by faith alone. And when he began to preach that, there was a bunch of religious organizations that were not happy. And Luther 
was persecuted. Amazing that he wasn't at some point martyred. He had his faults, Luther did. If you read of his writings, there'll be some things rather embarrassing. But he came under the power of the truth of God and never was the same. I suggest you and I need to come under this powerful truth. You, if you're a believer, you are the temple of God. And God lives in you. And that should radically change who you are. Here's a practical way to think of it. The Apostle Paul actually applies it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You don't need to turn there. You can if you want. <coughs> but Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6, 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By the way, that's an amazing truth. Your body has been made for the Lord. You were designed to be a temple of God. Verse 14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us up also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Understand, context is sexual immorality. Never, he says. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two become one flesh. And whoever is united with the Lord is one with him. So flee sexual immorality. That, that's unthinkable. That you, united with God, would unite yourself in such an immoral way. Flee sexual immorality, all their sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you? Whom you have from God, and you do not belong to yourself. Isn't the cry today often, I should be able to do what I want to do with my own body. Your body is not yours because it was made by God. It was redeemed by God. And if you're a Christian, God inhabits it. And so, don't you know that? You're bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Paul is saying, listen, it's just this simple. If you're a Christian, God lives in you. And where you go, he goes. <laughs> and what you do, he does. He, he does, he does. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you get the point. <laughs> Amazing that we drag God into things like that. Embarrassing. Oh, I can remember a time when I grew into my teen years and I didn't want my parents around. Not that I was necessarily doing anything bad. I just didn't want them hanging around. But sometimes I might be doing something bad that, you know, they wouldn't approve of. The Holy Spirit's with you if you're a believer. Should that not affect your conduct? Absolutely. Now, what does this Holy Spirit, this indwelling spirit do? Well, verse 10 says, if Christ is living in you, there it is again, even though your body will die because of sin, your spirit will live because of righteousness. And then I have just the phrase, 
translating the word righteousness from the new living, you've been made right with God. So because you've been made right with God, you have the spirit living within. He is the spirit of life, and the spirit gives you life. The spirit will live and cause your spirit to live. In other words, because of the Holy Spirit in your heart, you'll know what real life is. Eternal life, genuine life, abundant life. If you really want to live, have the Spirit live fully in your soul. I know some of you don't believe this. I see it in your face. I understand it. And until your heart grabs the truth of Scripture, it's easy to ignore. But if you want your life to be transformed, here it is. God's spirit is in you and the spirit gives you life. Because of Adam, we're all born in Adam, we die physically. Those who are in Christ because of his righteousness live spiritually. So verse 10 says, your body will die, but your spirit lives both now and forever. 2 Corinthians 4, 16, though outwardly we're wasting away, Paul said, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. But there's something about the body that is said too. Look at verse 11, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, if he is. Third time it's been mentioned now, God living in you. And if he is, the one who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because the spirit of life, the spirit who raises us to life lives in you. So one day, on that final day, these bodies will be resurrected. There hasn't been a funeral I've ever done for a believer that such a truth doesn't bring great joy. Oh, their spirit is with the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord immediately, but one day the body will be raised in a miraculous way. And forever we will be with him. Look at verse 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it's not to the flesh. To live according to the flesh. We have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh. Well, who is the obligation to? The obligation is to the spirit, right? As some translations put it, we're debtors to the Holy Spirit. Interesting idea, compelling. We owe him something, not to gain our salvation, but because we're saved. And the whole idea of living a life of holiness is an obligation on any, every believer. Thus, the Holy Spirit is the one who works out the requirements of the law in our life and causes us to live a holy life. A holy life is simply living like Jesus. Living up to the status of being a, a Christian and also living like Christ. Living like Christ, his disposition of kindness and gentleness and love. Living like Christ is bearing the fruit of the spirit of love and joy and peace and patience, goodness and kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's holiness. And we're obligated to the spirit who dwells in us. Verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. It's just that simple. Paul said it earlier. 
the sinful nature cannot please God, doesn't have the ability to, doesn't want to, and all the deeds of the sinful nature work about death. But if by the spirit you're putting to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now notice, this spirit who dwells in you not only gives you life, but he gives you the power to fight death. He gives you the power to make war with the deeds of your body. And I'm talking about the misdeeds as it's translated here, the sinful acts of the sinful nature. Oh, there's a lot of Christians who wanna keep in step with the spirit and they wanna add the love, joy, and the peace and they want those positive virtues of Christ in their life. But few Christians are consistent in making war with the remaining corruption in their life. And yet that's the mark of the Holy Spirit living within. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. This word sometimes is translated mortify. You've got to mortify the deeds of the body. What does mortify mean? Put to death, kill it. You know, some people don't want to kill anything. And I get it. I mean, obviously, we should be lovers of life, <laughs> promoting death. But I had an aunt who hate, hated killing bugs. And a dear aunt, my Aunt Ruth, and we would spend time with her in Virginia. And if there was a bug in my arm, I remember a mosquito or something landing on my arm, and I killed it. That was kind of my MO. You know, bug gets on me, you're done. <laughs> And Aunt Ruth went bonkers. She said, no, 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 don't kill that. And so the next time, <laughs> well, the next time there was a bug on me, I went out of the room and killed it. But she would come, she would come and gather that bug and walk outside and put it outside. Very kind lady. And I thought to myself, that bug's just coming back in in a few minutes. We've, we've got to nip this in the bud at the beginning. But she hated to kill things. I think there's a lot of Christians who in their desire to promote life, which is good, don't like to kill. And yet Ecclesiastes says there's a time to kill. What are you talking about? Some of you have had cancer and you meet with a doctor and the doctor says there's an invader in your body that's working about death. We've got to kill it. We've got to kill every cancer cell we can find and eliminate it. Are you on board? What do you say? No, I just don't like to kill things. Well, if something's killing you, you're probably in favor of it, to kill it. And there's nothing wrong with that. Well, the sinful deeds of the body are killing you. They result in death. You've got to kill them so that you might enjoy the wonderful life that the Holy Spirit gives. And here's where the superpower comes into play. For it says in verse 13, by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body. Go back to chapter seven and you'll see that Paul was very frustrated and he couldn't do it on his own and he has no power, even if he wants to, to accomplish the act. But now with the Spirit's power within, you have the ability to say no and to kill it. There's an interesting portion of scripture 
which I found in my early Christian life very difficult to understand. The Lord Jesus, preaching a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, said this. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Remember that one? If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, cut it off. And each time, he said, it's better for you to go into heaven crippled than it is for you to be thrown into hell. Now, does that mean that God wants us to mutilate our body? <laughs> we're, we're attacked by being those who literally believe everything the Bible says. And we literally, literally believe every metaphor in its main point. We don't literally believe that a metaphor should be understood literally. Jesus doesn't want you to cut off your hand and take out your eye. That's some, there are some Christian groups that have done that. I mean, you can't do that very often. <laughs> it's kind of a short-lived project. Oh, but the sin within keeps coming up. What does it mean? Deal radically with it. Be ruthless. Kill it. Give it no mercy. Oh, but it's a fun sin. It's a little sin. I've enjoyed. Kill it. That's what the scripture is saying. And what a great truth it is when we learn by the grace of God to do that very thing. Verse 14 takes us in a new direction. The first truth was we are God's temple. The second truth, we are God's children. Come under the power of these truths and it will radically change your life. Let faith grab hold of it as being true and then apply it. Diligently seek to live it so you can enjoy the reward God has promised. Look at verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God, they are children of God. We had a new reality, God living in us, now a new identity, we are his children. By the way, in verse 14, the word children literally is the Greek word for sons. And I have that there on the screen. The interesting thing about this is that in verse 14 and 15, the Greek word is sons, and there's a reason for it. But in verse 16 and 17, the Greek word is techna, which is children. And they're used interchangeably. You say, why? Because there's a perspective that we need to understand that we are God's sons. And we need to also understand that this perspective is broad enough to include brothers and sisters. Greek word brethren is the same way. It doesn't mean just males. It means brothers and sisters. And that's the way it's translated in the newest translation of the NIV. So you have this interchange here. It's important for us to know that whoever is led by the Spirit of God, you are a son of God. Forget gender for the moment. And the very next verse is going to explain to us, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you've received the spirit of sonship, which is a combination of two Greek words, sons and to be placed 
And that's why it's translated in the English, adopt. As children of God, we are not naturally his children. We're children of Adam, but we are adopted into his family. We're placed as adult sons. And the reason for that is important, as we'll see in just a moment. So sin kidnaps us, God adopts us. Sin makes us slaves, God makes us his sons. Sin produces fear, but notice what the Spirit produces. And by the Spirit, not only are we constituted his sons, but we cry, Abba, Father. The old bondage was characterized by slavish fear. Our new sonship is characterized by fatherly love. We call him Abba. If you watch the Chosen series, you'll see that that is the name that Jesus calls the Father when he prays, and appropriately so. In Jewish literature, it's interesting that rarely did the Jews even talk about my father, let alone using a word more intimate like the Aramaic Abba. The Jews knew how to pray, and they prayed fervently. And they respected God's name so much they wouldn't even acknowledge it. And if they did, they had to say a blessing with it. Jesus breaks all tradition when he begins to pray, Abba. You talk about people hating him. Blasphemer, you make yourself equal with God and now you're calling him your intimate father. That's wrong. And Jesus says, no, it's right. Because he is. In the garden, he uses that, that word Abba. He teaches us in the Lord's Prayer, my Abba. Jesus gives his special name about his father to us. And it's the Holy Spirit in our heart who says, by the way, when you're praying, I'm going to cry out Abba, and I want you to do the same. Notice it's the Spirit crying, and we are to echo the cry, Abba. Warm acceptance into the family of God. You'll read about adoption in Romans chapter 8, verse 23. It's going to talk about Israel's adoption in chapter 9, verse 4. Paul will use it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, that we've been predestined to be adopted as his sons. <clears throat> and also in Galatians chapter 4, because you are sons, God sent his spirit into your hearts, the spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. So what you and I need to do is enter in more deeply into this Abba relationship. That's a truth that needs to grab hold of your hearts. You're God's child and he loves you. And he wants a deep, personal relationship with you. Some of you have had a great and meaningful relationship with an earthly father some of you did have one, but have it no more because he's gone. And there are many who never knew what it was like to be close to a father who loves you. But God Almighty loves you. And he wants to be close with you. Verse 16, so the spirit himself testifies with our spirit, the internal witness 
that we are the children of God. There is external evidence by the way we live, but the internal evidence is the Spirit in our prayer causing us to cry out, Abba. The Spirit does the work and the Spirit brings the witness. And in our quiet moments of communion with God, we hear the Spirit say, it sounds very subjective, <laughs> it is. The Spirit says to our hearts, Abba. And we embrace the love. Verse 17, now, if we are children, then we are heirs. And here's where the sonship comes in because the inheritance would only go to the male adult son. The first son. <clears throat> we are heirs of God and we're joint heirs or co-heirs with Jesus. In other words, the way we get into this is Christ. He dies for us, cleanses us from our sin, covers us with his righteousness. We're accepted before the Father in Jesus. So when the inheritance goes out, it goes out to Christ and everyone who's in Christ. Joint heirs with Christ. How amazing is that? Ah, oh, there's a stipulation here though. It's, it's not conditional. We are joint heirs if we share in his sufferings so that we can also share in his glory. I think uh, the way the New Living has it is good. If we are to share in his glory, we will also share in his sufferings. So those who are truly his not only will have the crown, but first they will have the tribulation and the challenge of it all. Suffering is the pathway to the glory of God and once it will be ours. So come under the power, the dominating power of these two truths. You are God's temple if you're a Christian. You are God's child. If you're God's temple, that means he's given you life and he gives you power to fight the battle with sin. If you're God's child, that means you have a father and it means you have an inheritance, as Peter says, that is incorruptible, undefiled, never fades away, reserved in heaven for us. Once far from God and dead in sin, no light my heart could see, but in God's word the light I found, now Christ liveth in me. Great hymn. With longing all my heart is filled that like him I may be as on the wondrous thought I dwell. Christ liveth in me. Christ liveth in me. Oh, what a salvation is this. Christ liveth in me. Let's pray. If you're not a believer, may I invite you to trust Christ. Kim Dalman shared the words from Romans, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved if with an honest prayer you acknowledge you're a sinner and you need a savior and you trust him, he will save you. And when he saves you, he comes in to dwell in your heart, in your life, and you become his temple. He gives you life and power. And when you trust Christ, you become his child and he becomes your close father 
desiring to bless you more than anything else. And one day we'll give you a glorious inheritance. Trust him. Trust him today. Amen.